So there's, there were battles in the 50s about what would constitute literary criticism, what, what it should be and what, it, what its aims were and what its purposes were. Um, and um, one of the parties in the fight was the Chicago Neo-Aristotelians, right? And they, had, they produced a, a whole body of literature, of critical writings uh, advocating for their point of view. And they were called Neo-Aristotelians because they started from the position of Aristotle's poetics. Um, Aristotle in the poetics is trying to do something very particular. He's trying to think about a work of art, not in terms of how it, it comes into being or how it affects people afterwards. He wants to focus attention on the work of art as the work of art, right? So he wants to give a definition of tragedy, which is what he's principally interested in, in terms that define it in terms of itself, right? So for Aristotle, the tragedy is a construction in language, uh, in dialogue form, performed on a stage, uh, in order to do, in order to bring about a certain effect. So what Aristotle ends up saying is that tragedy is made up of plot that determine the kind of characters, that determine the kind of thoughts, that determine the kind of words of diction of the thing. And if you think of a tragedy as simply a construction of plot, character, thought, and words, right? you have a work of art being considered in terms of itself, right, with nothing outside of it. We're not trying to derive it uh, from other sources. We're not trying to account for why people make tragedies or why they enjoy them. That would be a different inquiry. That would be psychology of artistic creation or the sociology of audiences. But Aristotle isn't trying to do that in that place. He's trying to simply understand the work of art in its own terms. And that was the position of the Chicago Neo-Aristotelians, actually. That that's how you looked at a work. Their opponents, and this is what's really weird, but it may, might resonate with some of you, said that what characterized poetry was the kind of language it used. Poetry was essentially a kind of language. And the objection to them, to that position from the Chicago Neo-Aristotelians, was that you're forgetting about all this stuff, right? It's not, the language is there not for the sake of language, but for the sake of expressing the thoughts of characters. The characters, uh, the characters are there for the sake of act enacting a plot, right? So unless you looked at the plot, you wouldn't understand what the use of the language was. So they kept emphasizing plot, 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 uh, and that, and they were mostly gone by the time I got to college. Uh, Keast was gone, and uh, and Crane was gone, but Crane left behind him. Horace uh, Crane uh, left behind a, a couple of books, a book, a collection of Chicago's critical writings, and a book of his own called The Languages of Criticism and the structure of poetry, which was a uh, systematic presentation of the Aristotelian position. Um, and I read those books. <laughs> uh, but, I, but I never took a literature course in college. I'm not a literary, I didn't pursue it. I took literature courses in other departments, but not in the English department. I, I studied in the Italian department mostly when I was studying literature. And the criticism, and it was not a bad thing to have done, but the criticism of the Chicago critics were that they gave you a perfectly good theory of how to go about literary criticism, and they were really adept at doing it. They were philosophically extremely sophisticated, actually, and why not, since Richard McKeon was involved in, this, in the project. Um, but they never did any literary criticism. <laughs> <laughs> they never actually sat down with a book and took it apart, or they very rarely did. So the reason why they failed and, and to defeat their, their uh, enemies, so-called new critics, 
was that they couldn't display to the world what critics should be doing. They didn't actually do it. Right? They gave you a reason to, uh, to think of art in a certain way, but they couldn't show you how to do it. Uh, they would have been formal analysts had they bothered, but they never actually came down to cases. There's an occasional essay, there's McLean's essay on uh, Plot and King Lear, uh, and there's Elder Olson does an analysis of sailing to Byzantium by Yeats, but it's very rare, and it's not very rewarding either, because they actually had a problem. They kept wanting a plot, but lyric poetry doesn't have a plot, so they have to keep foisting different kinds of substitutes for plot on lyric poems, situations. But lyric poetry, you may not have a situation, right? It's a problem. Not to mention the fact that this isn't translatable or they didn't bother to translate it into any art other than literature. Right? So that's another limitation. Um, lyric poetry doesn't have characters. Right? That's something, too. Right? Uh, so you have a lot of problems in trying to uh, generalize that. Um, so anyway, they were there, and that's what I just sort of brought up in. I was uh, I studied with Olson, Elder Olson, and he made it very clear that this is the best position to take. Um, and uh, that was my exposure to literary criticism. Uh, and you can see that this class is, in a sense, derived from the Aristotelian position. And if I were actually giving my formal anal analysis lectures, I would be constantly drawing on Aristotle. Um, but nobody did it, so I didn't know how to do it. The other thing about the University of Chicago uh, was that they went very slowly on things. Um, they had a core curriculum that they were constantly contrasting with the core curriculum at Columbia, which they despised, and which I've inherited my contempt for Columbia from them. And the reason was, and this was confirmed to me by my old student, Neely, who taught in the core curriculum at Columbia. I said, what are you doing? He said, this week we're doing Aristotle's Ethics. What are you doing next week? Plato's Republic. What are you doing the week after that? Spinoza's Ethics. All right, those are good books, and you should read them. But no one, no freshman can read Aristotle's Ethics in a week and understand what the hell is going on. Uh, I remember uh, a course in Aristotle's, in which Aristotle's Ethics was read at the University of Chicago, in which we spent the week on the first paragraph. All right, now I know Greek doesn't have paragraphs, but there's a certain section there that you just stop. And the question, they'd read it and say, what's the philosopher doing? And, and they would spend as much time as was necessary to get you to understand it. Uh, I remember Mr. Swenson <laughs> uh, torturing the class for three hours while we were sitting in front of uh, the preface to Bergson's essay on the immediate date of consciousness. Uh, but no, what's the philosopher doing? Well, he says, don't tell me what he says. What's he doing? Well, he's trying. He's not trying anything. Tell me what he's doing. The whole spiel, right? This is he inherited from his own teacher, uh, who later became a teacher of mine. Uh, now, the preface to in that book is ten lines long. All right, so that was a three-hour class on ten lines, right? And this was generally the rule in the philosophy classes, um, or not the philosophy classes, I should say, in the, in the classes that were taught in the department called the history of ideas and the analysis of methods. That was a separate department. Don't ask me what it means, but it was a different approach, and it was largely this, this kind of approach that was taken. You weren't so much interested in finding out what the philosopher said as what the philosopher was doing. That made it different from the philosophy classes as such. Um, one of the, one of the uh, teachers, the, the mastermind of that department was, uh, was Richard McKeon, and uh, thanks to a, another former student of mine, 
who's a librarian, I was able to lay hands on McKeon's syllabuses from his teaching career. The, the University of Chicago Xeroxed them and sent them as an interlibrary request. And it was interesting. And, and McKeon's classes were always uh, taped, and they've since published the transcripts of one of his courses. And the assignments are very interesting. It would be like Newton, you know, the syllabus would say Newton's Principia, right? Uh, but the assignment would be page one, right? And then page 30, right? Stuff like that. Aristotle's physics, you know, the first two pages, and then some pages from later on. In other words, nobody went fast, right? Everybody went very slowly. And the reason why it was a superior core curriculum should be obvious is that students have to learn how to read before you can throw sophisticated books at them. Right? You get nothing out of reading Aristotle's ethics if you can't read it as philosophy. If you're just reading it like a novel, you don't know how you're reading it. Right? So it was a superior method. And the one thing that you came away with was that the closer you looked at something, the more you saw it. Before <laughs> um, you could talk about it, because no one ever, I was never asked, what's your opinion of these things? That question never came up. How do you feel about this stuff? That was never, it was an impossible question. It would never have been asked. Nobody would have thought the students would have said, well, I'm sorry, what are you asking? It would have been so shocking to be, to be asked that. But the collateral lesson of that was that first you had to find out what it was you were talking about before you started talking about it. And that you should restrain your desire to opine until you know what the, what the thing that you're opining about was. And that, too, sort of comes into this class, too, right? It's wait to see what Melville is doing before you say whether you like it or not or, or whether it's good or bad, right? Always restrain it. Um, so going slowly, right, uh, and not, and I guess you would say not soliciting students' opinions until they, at any point with the two things that sort of came out of that, um, they... Uh, that, you know, it's funny because I, I went, as I said, this was the University of Chicago. I went to graduate school at Harvard. Um, and when you go to a graduate school, you go to any school, I don't think they do it, but at most universities, once you once you graduate, once you got a degree, they send you their alumni magazine every every month, whether you like it or not. And the Harvard magazine, uh, I still get it. And the magazines are constructed to praise the school, right? They're supposed to elicit, solicit, elicit contributions from the faculty of the alumni. And in both magazines from the University of Chicago and from Harvard, there's a feature that says, you know, uh, Master Teacher of the Month, whatever it was. And it would be the, an article about a session in a class, right? And they, they, now the, uh, the, uh, the journalist would, would recount what went on in the class, right? And at the University of Chicago, it was pretty much the same thing. It wasn't quite what's the philosopher doing, but it was, you know, and then what does he say, and then why does he say it, and, you know, and so forth. And the Harvard one, the last one I read was, I brought it to read, uh, the distinguished professor of poetry, Tory Graham, uh, uh, occupies a very prestigious chair, probably, as a matter of fact, one of the, one of the storied chairs in, in American academic life. She's teaching poetry, and her question to her students is, how does it make you feel? And then everybody would say how it made them felt. And that's what poetry does. It makes you feel, right? Uh, and that sort of thing was going around when I was a kid, too. You know, it wasn't just a contemporary uh, aberration. Um, after the 60s, all anybody could talk about was how anybody felt. But, you know, um, and the, with the beat, 
generation rising to celebrity, uh, everything was anti-rational and you were just supposed to react. The, the, the mantra of the Beats was first thought, best thought. Right? Never, never revise, never think twice, right? Spontaneity, man, right? Uh, and that played right into the 60s. But Chicago was completely isolated from that trend. Let me tell you, in fact, when all the universities, the students were uh, occupying the administration buildings at the protest, some vague thing that they were protesting, um, Chicago was the only university that expelled every protester. <laughs> they didn't, didn't bargain with them, they didn't listen to them, they just threw them out. Uh, and then it was that kind of a place, actually. So anyway, so you learn to go slowly and you learn to uh, pay attention to something. But what you didn't learn was how to do that with a poem or a play, because no one did that. Um, and it was fortunate for me, I decided, when, I guess after my third year, I went to a performance of Shakespeare in the Park of As You Like It. And it was, one of the, it was the second most important aesthetic experience of my life because I had an insight into comic form, and it was the first time I'd ever had an insight. <laughs> oh no. Um, and I said, you know, I'll, I'll look at this closely. So I got a copy of As You Like It, and I poured over, and I still have the copy actually, and then I went to other Shakespeare plays, and I didn't know what I was doing. I was sort of blundering around. I knew that I wasn't going to go outside the text, and I knew I wasn't going to give you feel anything, right? That didn't let you do it. I wanted to know what the poet was doing, what's the playwright doing, right? The same way we'd ask, what's the philosopher doing? The answer was somewhat different because poetic, the nature of poetic discourses is different from philosophical discourse in some respects. But I began to look very closely at those things. So I went to graduate school. That was a, that was a mistake. Uh, but I did learn a lot of languages in graduate school, which was okay. And then I came back and I worked in an envelope factory which is where Harvard MAs used to end up, and I was terrible at it, by the way. Uh, they kept me on only because of the, uh, the amusing novelty of having such a distinguishedly educated person on working in an envelope company because I was the worst person in the company. Um, and then my then-girlfriend got a phone call from a friend of hers who was a director, and he said, do you want a job tutoring me? She said, no, but maybe Arnie does. I said, yeah, but in the envelope factory paid eight dollars an hour. The envelope factory only three twenty-five an hour. Three twenty-five an hour, though, twenty hours a week was enough to have an apartment in Soho and to eat out twice a week in the good old days of New York, when you could still be poor. So I, I ended up as a tutor, and then the, the head of the tutoring program was the head of the English department. He said, why don't you teach English for us next year? So I was a 25-year-old English professor suddenly, and I said, what am I going to do? I better do something I know. So I did As You Like It, right? That was the first thing we did, because I knew As You Like It pretty well, right? By that time, I had read all the Shakespearean comedies closely enough to have written a book about them. I did write a book about them, actually. I wrote a book on Shakespearean comedy in graduate school. Instead of doing my graduate school work, which I decided was a waste of time, uh, the book was no good, and fortunately it has been drowned. Uh, but it was worth doing because it really takes to write a book it takes more than just to write a paper. You know, you have to actually conduct an argument for 200 pages. It's a lot more. Um, so it was a worthwhile enterprise. But, so I knew as you like it. So I thought we'll do as you like it. So I prepared my syllabus, uh, and the first thing was Shakespeare as you like it, weeks one through four. So after the fourth week, we were on like act one. We had gotten out of Act One and that was about it. 
So I said, I better, I better slow down. I can't do it this fast. It wasn't because the kids couldn't do it that fast. It was because I couldn't do it that fast, right? Every line, like in this Bartleby, is significant. He, he can't stop, right? He, every, every sentence has to be examined. So the next year, I scheduled, uh, I think, six weeks. So we got out of Act 2. And I thought, this is no good. What am I doing? Let's spend as much time as necessary. So the third year, I discovered the Jacobean tragedies. And all through my teaching career, I've always gone back to the Jacobean tragedies. These were playwrights that were, uh, came directly after Shakespeare uh, and are, are wonderful and crazy and full of blood and gore and revenge, and they're great plays. Um, so I discovered the Duchess of Malfi. I said, let's do the Duchess of Malfi. Because right? I didn't know the Duchess of Malfi. I wanted to know it. One of the big changes in my teaching career, actually, is when I went from teaching what I thought I knew to teaching what I didn't know and wanted to know. The great thing about being a teacher is that you can do that, and the benefit of that is to the student, because the student gets to see not only what you find when you come to know it, but you in the act of coming to know something, right? You can model the act of discovery. This is generally the case, by the way. The most memorable classes are the classes where you see the teacher doing his thinking in front of you. Um, that's what the mathematicians always tell us. Uh, John von Neumann was the, one of the great mathematicians of the 20th century, and he was a great bon vivant as well as a great mathematician. And the, the student said it was great. He would come in at 9 in the morning, still wearing his tuxedo from last night, with his tie pulled down, and he could smell the alcohol, and then he would just start thinking about the problem he was trying to solve. And he'd put it on the board, right? He would just tell you what he was thinking. And that was what made them mathematicians, to see a mathematician uh, actually thinking in front of them. And so, even though I've always used these classes to discover what the, the books, rather than coming and knowing them, uh, it's always been a good thing for the students when that happens, because you really get to get on board with the excitement of discovery about something. So I gave the Duchess of Malfi ten weeks. Uh, and the kids, it just, just a happy thing. The kids loved it. Uh, it was a great success. It was a terrific semester all year. And then we went on to fourth salon and did other things. And that's thought, this is it. This is what we'll do from now on. We'll just spend as much time as it takes to get to the end of the book. Time will stop. Who cares? And we'll figure it out. Uh, and then, this is the first episode of institutional incompetence in this narrative. Um, at, at that time, the foundation students took five nine credits of studio. Uh, I can tell you what they were. There were three drawing classes, color class, and 3D class. And they took three credits of art history survey, three credits of English, and three credits of aesthetics. Don't ask. Uh, don't ask what it was. Uh, it's not any kind of thing that it would have taken. Um, so the nine credits of liberal arts, and so the, the, the institutional incompetence manifested itself when the art history teachers said, wouldn't it be great, I could name her actually, uh, wouldn't it be great if, if when, when we art historians, they always call themselves art historians by the way, when we art historians are doing Greek literature, the aesthetics class could be doing Greek aesthetics and the English class could be doing Greek literature. Now that's a problem because Greek literature isn't written in English. Ah, right, and if you're looking closely at something, you've got to be looking at something closely in the language, right, you can't look at a translation. So I said, what do we do when you're doing cave art? <laughs> and she said, oh, then you can do myth, which is very funny. Um, 
and then one of the English teachers said, yes, yes, myth. It's always, there's always a tendency that people want to do myth for some reason. Um, she said, yes, there's a great translation, a new translation of Gilgamesh that's just marvelous. Let me read you from it. Um, and she, and I still remember it, it was, Enkidu was a beast and Gilgamesh was a god. It is the story of their becoming human together. And I said, you can't say that in Sumerian. <laughs> now, I don't know Sumerian, but I knew enough ancient Near Eastern languages to know you couldn't say that. Becoming human is not something you can say in ancient Near Eastern language. And she said, oh, no, 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 I have to translate and put that in. So that was even worse, right? That couldn't have been worse. So they went and did it. They actually coordinated their curriculum. The problem was not just that all the language, all the literature would be in translation until March, because English doesn't become readable until they got to the Renaissance, right? Um, the problem was you couldn't go slowly. You had to coordinate with them. You know how fast they go in that class, right? It's the pharaohs one week, ancient Greeks the next week, you know? You couldn't do it. Um, so I ignored it. I said, I'm not going to do it. Right. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to do it. I just had this great success with these students. It was a great class. I know what I'm doing. You are a moron. I didn't say that. Um, but I somehow managed to. Yeah, I think they got that. I, I think I got it across. Um, and I really can't believe they let me do it. I said, I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. It's, it's too stupid an idea. And why Why should they coordinate? Why should we coordinate them? Why don't they coordinate with us? Right? Um, I've been, I spent my 20s reading literatures in seven languages, so I was sensitive to the idea that you couldn't actually read it, a thing in translation and get it. You could get something from a novel, but you couldn't get what we wanted in that English class, which was the actual thing, right? Um, so I ignored it. I said, here's what I'll do. When you're doing, when you're doing Greek, I'll do Shakespeare's play, Antony and Cleopatra. And when you're doing medieval, I'll do Henry Adams on Monsanto, Shell and Shark, right? And when you're doing the Renaissance, I'll do Hawthorne. By then, they didn't care, right? And I did it, right? I really still can't believe it, because they, now they would fire you, right? This was a much wilder and woolly days of people who were able to teach what they thought was best, basically. There was no set curriculum and foundation. Every teacher taught what he thought was best and what he liked most to teach. And as a result, classes were fun, because <laughs> the teachers were really into it. Uh, later, a regime came in, brought in by an ex-girlfriend of mine, unfortunately. Uh, that, that's one there we go, that's one girlfriend gotten in. Um, it's the bad girl. But they're all, well, <laughs> she regularized the foundation curriculum, right? She was given the order that everybody does the same thing on the same week, right? And that's been the foundation curriculum ever since that way. In the old days, it was... Um, what was the argument for that? Hmm? What was the argument for Doing everything, everybody doing the same well, thing. they don't have an argument for it. Wait, that would be the next episode. They didn't have an argument. They didn't. You know, the, the, what you had in Foundation was a bunch of very eccentric, strong personalities who were all nuts in one way or another. Some were nuts the wrong way and shouldn't have been teaching, right? You know, But some were right, nuts the right way. Kesapkis, uh, who taught color, the only thing in the world that mattered was color. Right? That was it. It's like Bevington with type, right? Those are the kind of teachers you want. Now, they're nuts. You don't have to become like them. But if you have a whole bunch of them, you really get something, right? 
Um, everyone took everything very seriously. Foundation was incredibly uh, intense and serious. Every teacher gave as much work as they thought was what they wanted to do. Nobody cared what anybody else was doing, and every student was expected to do it. And if you didn't do it, they let you know you didn't do it. It's a professional ethos. This is the assignment. You do it. I don't care. No excuses. As I've sometimes said, the old the old method was they put the drawings on the wall and they didn't like it. They would take the tacks out and fall to the floor and then walk over into the next drawing or knock the model to the ground and then step on it and go in and just completely ignore the kid. Those are good old days, right? But anyway, to get back to me, um, uh, so I ignored it and going on with my teaching, teaching Shakespeare plays from the ancient Greek Shakespeare plays, right? That did it for like five years afterwards until finally the whole stupid idea fell apart and they stopped coordinating uh, and everyone sort of went back to where they went and they got rid of the aesthetics class too. Um, in those days, students took their liberal arts electives as not a night school. Night school is a, is, a, is a Woody Allen joke, right? Whenever he wants a joke about pseudo-intellectuals, he talks about In other words, there'd be, te there'd be courses open to the general public, and students would pay college tuition to take courses that they could have taken at the general public for like $100, right? And someone said, you know, I don't think objected to that, but I think the accreditation committee of New York State said, you can't do this. <laughs> you can't be giving college credit for courses that aren't college courses. So you have to offer your own liberal arts electives, right? So, so I was asked to teach one, uh, and I taught the tragedies of blood, uh, which was, uh, of course, I went back to tragedies of blood, and we did two plays. So I was offering liberal arts electives uh, in, in literature. I was doing all, I, I, tragedy, English comedies. I taught one called Criminals, Artists, Addicts, and Outsiders which, as you might imagine, got like a million students into it, right? But the problem was that the criminal was Oscar Wilde, the addict was De Quincey, the artist was Pater, and the outsider was Henry Adams. So it was really a course in complex 19th century prose. So they talked, <laughs> which is okay. Um, I taught a couple of really good courses. One was called The Demonic. Right, in demonic literature, we did the uncanny. I went through all these sort of things. I got a lot of fun at these courses. But I was also an advisor to the students who was taking these courses, and it occurred to me that there were no social science offerings. All the election, all the electives were being offered by the English teachers and the art history teachers. And the art history teachers were doing their usual, here I'm making fun of them, surrealism. <laughs> it was always sur One year they had four courses on surrealism, and I'm not making that up. Um, so, you know, art since 1960, which was a short enough time then, um, you know, the Baroque, that kind of stuff. And then the English teachers would offer their, you know, horrible English courses, um, usually the contemporary American novel, you know, contemporary American something. So I said they need social science because it's not reflected in the curriculum, and social science is actually the most important thing for the students. And so I set up as a social science teacher, knowing absolutely nothing about social science. I'd never taken any social science courses except the core curriculum in college. And I hadn't read any of the books I was assigning. I just knew the names. Um, the first one was called Sociology and Psychology of Taste. Because right? the sociology of taste is something a Parsons students really should know, right? It's, it's what determines what the market is, and it's a very profound subject. Uh, and then the next one was Sociology of, and Psychology of Emotion. Uh, 
uh, and then sociology and psychology of religion, and sociology and psychology of thinking. That was the magic course, by the way. I'll come back in a second. I also thought a good course in theories of decline, why civilizations decline. That was a lot of fun. Um, you could never teach it today because among the theories are theories of racial impurity. And you sort of can't teach a, a theorist who's telling you that civilizations fall when people become mongrels, right? When the races intermarry, that's the end. But in those days, you could get away with it. Um, but a funny thing, in, in the sociology of thinking class, uh, what was odd was uh, a bunch of students, and some of you have heard this, came up to me after class and said, we don't know how to write well. We want you to teach us how to write. Uh, and I said, okay. I didn't want to, of course. But we did it. Every Wednesday um, at 6 to 9, the administration gave us an office, not the administration, the admissions office gave us a, a table to sit at. We would meet after class independently, right? Not paid. Nothing. Nothing was paid here. Uh, not that we were paid very much anyway. And a student would write a paper and make Xerox copies, and we would sit around the table and we would tear it to shreds, right? Uh, and then next week another student would do it, and they would tear it to shreds. And the papers weren't paper they were writing for their courses. They were papers that they were writing for this writing thing, right? And this went on for three years. And in the course of it, I kind of learned two things about teaching. I learned that um, there's such a thing as an exposition paper that nobody knew how to write, and that it had to be taught, because you couldn't really write about a social science book uh, unless you were able to represent its argument. Representing its argument is what you do with a book like that. You don't respond to it, you know, you actually say what is in it. But that has all sorts of uh, obligations involved in it, and um, there are typical defects of student writing that I began to pick up on. Uh, and a lot of the things I ask people to do and a lot of the things I tell them not to do in these papers arises from the fact that I know what the typical defects of student writings are, student writing are, and I'm telling you to avoid them. Someone in the other class said, you know, if you just followed the instructions, the paper wrote itself, which is really true, but nobody ever follows the instructions. Um, but the two things I learned from that class is not only that uh, that exposition had to be had to be taught and how to teach it, uh, I also learned that the classes are the best when the students do all the work, when the teacher does nothing. I wasn't teaching them the book, right? Whatever book they were writing about, they were writing about. I was teaching them the paper. They were teaching themselves the book by writing up the paper, right? And what that eventually became, we eventually we started as, as an honors program in liberal arts, and I was the head of it, and I was the director of it, and I planned the curriculum. I was the curriculum architect. Uh, and it was a very good program, by the way. It ended up being 10 courses that students could elect to join the program. Anybody who wanted was in. I didn't want to keep anybody out. Uh, the first class got rid of a lot of them, however. Um, and it was a core curriculum. And it was, while it was running, and it ran for about eight years, uh, it was, I would have said, I would put this program against any core curriculum in any university in the world. It was that good, and the students really were wonderful. You know, take every student who's serious about liberal studies at this school and put them in one room, and you have a hell of a bunch of kids, right? What makes these classes unbearable to teach and to take is the people who aren't into them or are just dead and doing nothing or looking at their phones or dreaming about looking at their phones. 
get them all on one, on, all focused on one thing and all ready to do it, it's a wonderful experience. And these kids had that experience for their career, right? And it was just because they wanted it. That's all they had to do was want it. Anyway, the first class was exposition. Uh, it was a year-long course eventually. And the exposition class was exactly what I just described. We handed them a book. Marx very timer's book, Productive Thinking, which is no easy book. And it's a, it's a landmark in the, in the psychology of thinking. It's a very important book. All the social science curriculums that I was teaching, by the way, to undergraduates, sophomores basically, are the first year PhD course now at the graduate faculty. All right. In other words, I was teaching what I took to be undergraduate material, they now think of as graduate material. But it, it is undergraduate material, because the undergraduate level is the highest level. The graduate level is a serious decline from undergraduate. Anyway, we handed them this book and said, read it. <laughs> read it by next week. It's 200 pages. Um, and it, until he got to the end, he didn't know what he was arguing. Uh, and then we said, all right, Here's what we want you to do. Write, write an introductory paragraph that's architectonic, and then we explain what architectonic meant. Uh, and they went and did it, and they couldn't do it. And we would sit around the table in class and carve it up, right, and say what was wrong with it. And the only thing we ever said in that class was, no, and so what? That was it. No meant you're wrong. That's not what Vertimer is saying. So what meant why are you bothering to write this sentence? What's, what about the rest of it? Or what comes after what came before? We never taught the book. We only taught how to write the paper. The students learned how to read the book by writing the paper. That was the whole point of it. It was a tour de force of effective teaching because the teacher didn't teach. Right? The, the students did the teaching and they taught themselves. Uh, and at the result of that class, you get a bunch of freshmen who were just out of high school. Remember, you were all freshmen once. They hated it, by the way, until until the last week when they brought in their 50-page papers, right, and realized that they had done something that they never thought they could do. That the actual horizon of their possibilities lay way outside of what they up to then had conceived of, uh, and that was a, a collateral effect. And they were able to go on and do the rest of the courses. So from the scholars program, I learned that, and the, and in the course of teaching the scholars program. It grew, right? So I had to get someone else in to teach the exposition with me. So I got my colleague, Mary Bonice, who's the only person I trusted to do it. And she said, okay, if you're going to teach, if I'm going to teach exposition with you, you have to get up there in front of the, all the students and explain everything about the course, because I don't, want, I, don't want, I don't want them thinking that you're doing something different than what I'm doing, because otherwise they'll all want to be in your class because you're so charismatic. That's what she said. I said, all right, I'll give the speech. So I got up, the first class is the third year the program is running, and I introduced the scholars uh, program to the students. And I was possessed of an unusual eloquence, because seated in the second row at two o'clock <laughs> was who I just recently have told was the most beautiful thing I'd ever laid eyes on and who I loved from the moment I saw her. Isn't that romantic? It's very inspiring when you have someone like that in the class. Anyway, in, in the course of, of giving that speech, um, I had to formulate the aims and the reasons why the scholars program was the way it was, and it had a disciplinary organization. 
there was a year of humanities, a year of social science, and a course in natural sciences. We, we never equipped to really do the natural sciences the right way here. We were doing the philosophy of the natural sciences, and we never, they never really got it right. The people who were teaching never got it right. But the history course, the, just to take the humanities, it was uh, poetry, rhetoric, history, and philosophy, right? A semester each of each of those things. And they would, I distinguished them from each other, and I distinguished uh, the humanities from the social sciences and the natural sciences as being different ways of thinking. And I said, well, we're going to give you different ways of thinking, right? But within each way of thinking, we're not just going to give you one way of thinking. We're not going to say, this is the way you think historically, this is the way you think philosophically. We're going to give you pluralities of ways of thinking within ways of thinking, right? Um, and that's what we did, actually. We gave different uh, spectrum of positions. The history class, when it finally ended, there were 14 different history, different kinds of history that were being introduced to the students, right? Uh, which is exactly how you should do it, by the way, because otherwise people might think that history means one thing. It doesn't mean, instead of the millions of things, it does mean. So I began to think, well, what if artists and designers have ways of thinking too? How do you approach the ways of thinking behind uh, an architect, right? It's not words, right? Um, well, you're really... Still oh, it's still recording. Oh, it's still recording, okay. Um, one of the reasons why that, why that occurred to me, um, at a certain point I was teaching the social science classes in the fall and the literature classes in the spring, a freshman student of mine said, I want to read philosophy. I want to read philosophy. I came here to read philosophy. Would you teach philosophy? Would you teach philosophy? He um, was a great kid. Uh, I said, no, oh, I don't want to do this, because my own great teachers were philosophy teachers. I didn't think I could teach the way they taught. I was sure of it, actually. But she prevailed. So I said, I better start with something I know. So I did Plato, Plotinus, and Augustine. That was the first philosophy course, because I was comfortable with those three philosophers. And I thought if I, to use McKean language, I thought if I kept the interpretation and the method the same, I would finally figure out what principles were, because I knew that they had different principles. Uh, and then I taught Hobbes, Mill, and James, and the second year I was teaching philosophy, I finally figured out how to teach philosophy. Uh, and one of the ways, one of the, one of the courses I did that was a course called Aesthetic Universes, in which we read Dewey's Art as Experience, which I hadn't read since college, which was an epoch-making book in my own life. And in the course of that book, Dewey says what we all take we all know, but no one ever says, is that thinking can go on in different mediums and words. Right? We all know this. The sculptor thinks in, in, his, in his matter, whatever he's sculpting, and a, and a painter thinks in paint, and a poet thinks in rhythm, and a musician thinks in sound, right? But no one ever calls it thinking, right? No one would think about it as thinking. But if you think of it as thinking, then you have to say there are as many ways to think in paint as there are painters who think in paint. So how do you get to that? I knew how to get to different ways of thinking in philosophy and rhetoric and history because that was a, that's an easy thing to know, right? I, I know that Freud thinks psycho psychology is different from Jung, from Adler. That's easy to see. But how do you do it in terms of, of art? And what I came up with was you needed a method that elicited from the work its own structure without distorting that structure in the act of eliciting it, right? We wanted to treat every work of art by every artist as an individual thing that had its own internal principles of being. And you didn't want to smush it together with other things the way an art historian would do and say these are both Renaissance 
and they didn't want to smush it together with other things the way a, a gender theorist would do by saying this is by men, this is by women. And they didn't want to smush it together with, with other things by saying what do you feel about it. We wanted an objective method to elicit from the work its own inner ways of thinking so that we could learn how the great artists and designers thought in their material. Right. So the second instance of, uh, of incompetence, by the way, was when they ended the scholars program. Um, and the reason they gave was we want everybody to have the same experience. Right? We don't want just 20 people having this experience while the rest of you have that experience, but everybody has the same experience which of course is ludicrous because even if it was possible, why would it be desirable? They couldn't answer it, but they ended it. It cost them nothing to run. It was a jewel, and they just ended it without any, without any consideration. When I say institutional incompetence, I, I mean not that the individuals are incompetent, although they tend to be. I mean that the school as a whole is incompetent as an institution. It doesn't remember its own past, and it doesn't know what it's doing when it's doing something. That's what I mean. It can't preserve what's good and eliminate what's bad. It just does whatever it does without respect to what might follow from it. And every few years, you know, two years after the end of the Scholars Program, the Honors Program, um, I, who was the head of IDC at that time, came up to me and said, oh, get, get this, get, you won't believe what a wonderful idea we just had. We'll start an Honors Program. <laughs> this was two years, two years after they had an Honors Program, right? And of course they were meeting, we're meeting in committees, it's really fascinating. They never did it, by the way, of course, because once, the only reason it got started was because someone said, why don't you make an honors program? And I went ahead and did it. I didn't have a committee to deal with, right? I just went and did it. Um, so anyway, you put these things together, you have go slowly, right? Leave yourself out of it, right? Uh, objective method of, of understanding different kinds of works of art. Take the time, right? All those various uh, things come together, and they kind of came together in the formal analysis class. And the way it happened was, I was teaching the Jacobean tragedies again, like I always would do, right? Every 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 five or six years or so, and we read the first page of the White Devil. And I said, what's the poet doing? And this girl said, well, stars are mentioned. And I think like stars are like in the heavens. So it must be about heaven. And I said, don't interpret. And there was a long silence. And then she said, well, first he says he's been banished. And then the other guy says he deserves it. And he says, yeah, but other people deserve it too. And I said, don't paraphrase. <laughs> what could you do if you couldn't interpret or paraphrase, right? It's still the problem in your papers, by the way. Either you're interpreting or paraphrasing at some point. It's very rare that the student avoids those two things. Um, so finally someone, I think it was Miss Shams, I don't remember who it was exactly, said, I noticed that a lot of stuff is going up and down. And I said, tell me about that. Right? And that was the beginning of the formal analysis class. I didn't, I didn't have it in my mind to do that. It just spontaneously happened. I was tired of listening to interpretations of paraphrases of poetry. And because Mr. Farrell was in that class, uh, who was philosophically oriented, and, uh, and how can I put this, always asking everybody to account for everything they did, which made him very unpopular with 
uh, allow me to say the fair sex. He's having a lot of trouble getting a girlfriend because he could meet a girl at a party and he'd say, what do you do? And she'd say, I study economics. And he would say, how do you justify that? <laughs> so, it, wasn't, it wasn't working for him, you know? But it was working for me. <laughs> because he kept saying, how do you justify this method? How do you justify this method? How do you justify this method? And because I'd been teaching philosophy, uh, uh, along with aesthetic uh, theories of art, I knew how to justify the methods, right? I actually knew it. It took a long time to actually formulate the exact uh, nature of the whole thing. Uh, but that, those, the justifications that he was demanding, and later after him, Mr. Elliott kept demanding, and Mr. Cataldi kept demanding, uh, the pressure of these young, ruthless, philosophically oriented students, um, I had to come up with answers to those questions. And those questions became a series of lectures that would normally, normally precede every session of the formal analysis class. I didn't do it, I don't do it in the fall, I used to do it in the spring. There would be 10 such lectures in which the thing was justified, not just in its own terms, but contrasted to other possible approaches to literature and art, because you always want to present a plurality of things, right? So always the way to do it. Um, and that was how the formal analysis class got to be the way it was. Look closely, ways of thinking, students do everything, right? That's the whole point of the formal analysis class, is the teacher doesn't do anything. I didn't do anything. I did more in this class than, than I usually do because, it's, you know, I couldn't stand it. <laughs> when, it when it came to Bartleby, I couldn't stand it. Um, it's funny, it, the, other, the other thing I, I, I sort of, going along at the same time that I was formulating formal analysis class, I read an anecdote um, which perfectly illustrates why that class took, why this class took the form it took and why it's so different from other classes. Um, I don't remember what magazine it was in, but a distinguished professor was being shown around at a distinguished university. And um, he was, when they were going by the classes, and he looked in, the, in this class and he saw an old gentleman sitting at the head of the table holding a book and reading it to six graduate students who were sitting around the table. And the professor said to the guy who was showing him around, what's going on there? And the guy said, oh, that's Professor so-and-so. His teaching is the scandal of the department. He doesn't ask his students' opinions. He doesn't ask them to react. He doesn't, give, doesn't ask them to engage in critical interpretations. He doesn't ask them to do research. All he does is read Don Quixote to them in his magnificently accented Castilian Spanish. <laughs> and I thought, yes, <laughs> that's all you really want. I would take that class in a heartbeat, right? Um, and in a sense, that's what the formal analysis class really is. And I began with, and, and the reason why I ended with Bartleby is because, in a sense, I began with Bartleby in my, in my undergraduate, in my freshman classes, reading Bartleby to them in the spring semester. I just read it, and I'd stop at a certain point and look around and someone would say something. Um, and was, you know, the experience of the students doing all the work was the thing that made the formal analysis class work. I, could, I used to, when I started, I was doing formal analysis without knowing it, and I was sort of sharing with the students what I had found, which was very good because they could add to it and so forth. But then I realized, keep yourself out of it. Let them do all the discovery. What you're, not, you're not teaching the book, you're teaching the method. You're not teaching the book, you're teaching the paper, was the, was the uh, formal, was the uh, honors program thing. Um, and that's how it all happened, right? You put it all together, that's how the formal analysis class came into existence in 1990, 
2006, I think it was, um, and are now going out of existence in 2014. Now, why, right, why am I ending this course? For years, I thought this was the most important course I taught. I still think it's the most important course I taught, I teach. I used to say it's the course that takes art students and makes them into artists, or design students and makes them into designers. Because if you really take it to heart, something changes in your concept of what, of what your work is. You demand of yourself the perfection that you see in the work of others that you didn't think existed or knew why it was there. Right? You might like Picasso, right? and that's okay. And you can say, oh, I really love Picasso. But unless you've taken it apart stroke by stroke, you don't really see what's made it so great. And then when you see that each stroke counts, you say, well, I'll make each stroke count. I'll try to make each stroke count. Um, when you see Bartleby, you know, when you, when you really see what's going on in that, I don't see how you ever not try to emulate it, right? Expressions as perfect in its way. You just have to do it. You could ignore it, right? You could say, oh, that's, that's out of date, that's passe, that's just Melville, you know, we, we now know better than the, than the masters. You can do all those sorts of tricks. But once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. And I think you end up demanding of yourself more than you thought uh, was possible in the media. So to that extent, it's a very important, a very important thing for students to see when they take it to heart. But the problem is, and this is why I'm stopping it. Maybe I'll now know why I'm stopping it. It's a class that, it's, that the students have to do all the work in. It doesn't work when the teacher does the work. This was kind of a half-assed version of it because I, I was doing too much, not on the painting or the, or the film um, or the sculpture, certainly I have nothing to say about that at all, but I did come in with a little bit too much about Bartleby and so it kind of slackened off, but I couldn't help it, as I say. Uh, but what it requires is a class full of students who think a class is a place where they do the work. And the problem with, with the current crop of students that we have in this school, which is a very different crop than it was when this class started, is not that they can't do this. I'm not saying that they're incapable of looking at a paragraph and figuring it out. They're all capable of doing it. There's no change in the, in the absolute quantum of ability right, um, in the in, in, among the students. It's that I think that they can't conceive of the class as being a place where they do the work and the teacher doesn't do anything. But the teacher is not is actually letting them do all of it. And if you can't get students who are ready to do that, then you can't teach this class. If you get two out of 28, you can't have that class because you have 28 students doing all the things that they do in the back and then you just can't do it. Uh, and if they're, not, if they're not taking it seriously, you can't start with 45-minute lectures about the theory of formal analysis to a bunch of deadheads. It just doesn't work. It's a very hard class to teach. I know it doesn't look like it's a hard class to teach because I carry it off with such a plum. <laughs> but you have to do something in this class that you don't have to do in, in, another, in other kinds of classes. You have to listen to the students. You don't have to do that in other classes because you can talk and the students will say something and then you can just respond to it, right? It'll just be piecemeal. But when you listen to the students in a class like this, what you're listening for is the way that you can somehow indicate the emphasis that you think is the most rewarding for the student to go in, uh, either by making relations or by asking questions, uh, to get the student to the point where they make what the golden moment, when the, when the gestalt switches and the inadequate organization becomes the adequate organization, and then that switches and becomes an even more adequate organization. You're trying to do that, right? You're trying in invisible ways because you can't make it 
can't say, look, look, let me, let me switch it for you. That's no good. You want them to do it, otherwise it's not their experience. You have to listen very carefully, and you have to know how to invisibly guide the, the discussion. And you don't know what the next student is going to say, right? So you've got to be constantly improvising and constantly bending the arc, as they say, in the direction you want it to go. And sometimes you can't do it, and mostly you can't do it, right? And so, but, but you're always trying to do it. And as a result, that's an exhausting procedure. That's a very exhausting way to teach. Um, I was in my philosophy class earlier today, and I was talking for two hours, and I could, I could have talked for 20 hours. <laughs> it the, 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 uh, the rabbis tell us that the tongue never gets tired. It doesn't, doesn't cost me any effort to talk. This doesn't cost me any effort right now. But if I happen to listen, it would cost me a lot of effort. So it's a lot of effort to put in. I don't mind putting in the effort, but I don't think the students are up to it. I don't think they're worth my trouble. That's what I really do think. I think the kind of students we now have in the school are not worth my trouble. And I'll go even further. I don't think the school is worth my trouble. I don't think the administration backs the teachers anymore, for example. Right? Um, I don't think they're worth this trouble. Uh, and, I'm not, and that's one reason I'm doing it. I'm quitting it. But the other reason is that there's more to this than just simply taking the class. Um, I've had 600 students in formal analysis, I think, something like that. And if you ask me how many really got it, I would say nine. And that's okay. Nine out of 600 is not a bad number, right? But said, so what do you mean by really got it? What do you mean by really got it? Well, it's more than simply knowing how to do something. Uh, it's more than simply one method among many involves a commitment that is really a moral commitment because it's a demand on it. When I say moral, I mean it involves character and conduct, right? And the moral commitment in, in formal analysis is that you are going to listen and not talk. Because that's essentially what we do in front of a work of art in class like this. In the class we do, we, have, we talk to make our thoughts clear and to learn things. What we're actually doing is trying to listen to the thing that's in front of us, right? You want, to, you want to look, you want to perceive it. You don't want to project onto it, right? Um, and to, to talk and not, and talk and to, to listen and not to talk and to perceive and not to project are moral characteristics. They're not just simply acts a person does on occasion. It's something that they do their whole life. They wait to hear what the other person says before they react to it or think about it. Uh, and they try to look and see what the other person has done before they start talking about what, it would, what they think was done. Another thing that's involved is you admire and you don't resent. And that's something that most people aren't ready to do. When you look at these things closely, they become admirable in ways that you can't imagine. The Bartleby is a good way to end, actually, because who could not be amazed by that thing? But you'll find plenty of people who would deny that any of that's there. We're just reading it in. Nobody could have written something like that. It's happened class after class. The student denies that the great thing is great because they recognize that they are incapable as they stand of doing anything that great. If that's writing, they can't write. If that's painting, they can't paint. If that's sculpting, they can't sculpt. And not everybody is willing to do that, and the usual response is a negative one, namely to uh, deny that the thing is great. Uh, and what it really comes down to, to put it in moral terms, uh, it's a resolve to love and not envy. That's what it really is. 
when you see something as great as the things we look at in these classes, because um, we're always dealing with masterpieces, even when we aren't dealing with masterpieces, they turn out to be masterpieces. Everything turns out to be better than you think it is when you're actually looking at it. Uh, how do you deal with someone's superiority? That's the moral question, right? No one is all superior, right? There's always someone smarter than you, and someone better looking than you, and someone more athletic than you, and someone more able than you, and there's always going to be a better designer, and a better painter, and a better drawer. And some of them are going to be a lot better than you, right? There's going to be no comparison. <laughs> How do you deal with the person's greatness? How do you deal with someone's greatness? Uh, that's a moral question, and, and it seems to me you have two answers to it. You can envy that greatness and denigrate it because you are not as great and you recognize it. Or you can do what you ought to do, which is you could love that greatness. The only response to genius is love. That's the only way you can actually participate in the genius. And it's the only thing that is really the right human response to something that is more supremely human than you are, right? That's actually better than you. I don't think students are ready to make that kind of a commitment anymore. As I say, out of 609 have made it, I think, uh, who really do believe that, who really rejoice in the greatness of great work rather than envy it, uh, and are eager to, to share the insights that, that the great work has given them. And that's not an easy thing to get students to buy into, and uh, I don't think we typically get that. There's always a lot at stake in a class. There's more morally at stake in a class than you ever dream possible. If you take moral to mean the formation of character by conduct, Everything you do every minute is a moral decision and a moral act. You always are in the act of becoming the person you are becoming, and that's what ethics deals with. Uh, and a class like this is an ethical commitment, and I don't think anybody, I don't think students are ready to make it. I don't even think they can formulate what an ethical commitment of that kind would be, actually. I think that for a lot of reasons, I'm not, I'm not disparaging individuals here, I'm speaking sort of generationally and broadly. Um, I think most of the classes they attend encourage them to talk and not to listen. And most of the classes they attend encourage them to project and not to perceive. <laughs> and most of the classes they attend encourage them to resent and not to admire. I know that's true. All right? The way philosophy is sometimes taught here is um, uh, with suspicion that the philosopher is trying to lie to you, lie you into agreeing to it with him. That's resentment, really. Uh, underneath it all, not real, not real admiration, and there, and I think that they grow up in a situation where everybody envies and nobody loves. <laughs> I'm afraid that's really generally true, right? Um, so I'm not blaming them as individuals. I'm just saying that the class that depends on someone to be able to make that commitment is no longer a class that is exactly viable, or I don't feel at the moment to be viable again. Uh, maybe, maybe things will change. You know, I'll, I'll realize something change in the school or in the student body or in the world, but at the moment I just can't see it. So I'm terminating the formal analysis class uh, officially, although the grad my graduate students are trying to petition their department to get the formal analysis class as a graduate class. And if they succeed in that, I might go, I might strap on my armor for one last try <laughs> and see if they can do it. They're no better than undergraduates, uh, saying to Mr. Ehrenberg before class, I've had the ones that went to Princeton and ones that went to Harvard, and all that sort of thing. They're no better, smarter, or anything than a, than a, than a good undergraduate is. Um, but they do the work, <laughs> and they do it seriously, and they're all on top of every assignment. And with that kind of student, you might be able to resurrect a class like this. But until, I get a, until I'm guaranteed a bunch of them, I don't think I'm going to do it again.
don't know if that's an adequate reason for it, you know. Um, I know that, uh, you know, the, the question would always be that if the administration were to overhear these remarks. The, the question is, how do, you, how do you get students involved? How do you get students involved? How do you get students involved? And I suppose that's a legitimate thing. But my, uh, you know, to go back to my beginning at the University of Chicago, you get involved. I don't get you involved. All right? You're here. Either you're involved or you're not. That's up to you. But my line is, how you mismanage your education is your own affair really means I'm not motivating you. Right? You have to be in motion for me to care about you, for me to see you. Right? I'm like a frog. You know frogs only see what in motion. They only see what moves like, like a fly. They got these huge eyes. They're completely sightless. Put a fly in front of them and they snap. I'm like that. Show me a moving student. I see them. And they're not moving. I don't see them. They completely escape my, my notice. Uh, so that's that, right? Uh, it's really all I've got uh, in terms of why I'm doing it, why I did it, how it came to be. It took a long time to figure it out. Um, I was always a pretty good teacher, you know, but it was only in that sweet spot between 1994 and 2010 that I was really great. Um, it takes a while to learn how to do it, and uh, one of the things it takes a while to learn how to do is to keep yourself out of the class. The most valuable teaching is to let the students do the work in the class. That took a while to figure out, but I did eventually get it, and this class was the flower of it, and this is the last of it. All right, I have no peroration. This is the end. So, that's it. Class is dismissed. The formal analysis class is over. You were present at the end. <laughs>